Our second reading is from Psalm 82. These are God's words. A Psalm of Asaph. God standeth in the congregation of God. Amidst the gods he judgeth. Until when will ye judge unjustly and lift up the face of the wicked? Judge for the small and the orphan. To the wretched and poor do righteousness. Deliver the poor and wanting from the hand of the wicked pull them. They know not nor perceive. In darkness they go about. Shaken are all the foundations of the earth. I, I have said, gods ye are, and sons of the Most High, all of you. Yet indeed like men ye shall die, and like one of the princes fall. Rise up, O God, judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. Father, thank you for the word that you have spoken to us. Please send your spirit to help me rightly divide it and to distribute it to each of us as he has need. Plant it in our hearts, water it, and make it grow, that it may bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, we began to look at a neglected aspect of the heavenly court. For those of you who are joining us today and are not regular attendees, we have been working through a series on the church and worship, and we have been looking especially at worship as a presence in the heavenly court. And last week, we began to look at something which the church has not in recent times been particularly cognizant of. They have not taught on this or even necessarily been aware of it, which is an aspect called the divine council. We saw that there is a council of angels with whom God works in order to deal with problems here on earth. And these angels are often called the sons of God or some variant of that, sons of the most high, for instance. Sometimes they are called watchers, as in the book of Daniel, because they monitor what is going on down here. But whatever you want to call them, they are involved in bringing God's will in heaven down to earth. The main example that we looked at last week was Micaiah in 1 Kings 22, describing how this heavenly council came up with a plan to entice King Ahab to remote Gilead that he may fall in battle. Now, it is important to emphasize that our interest in this topic is not due to some disproportionate fascination with angels or the unseen realm. We are not spiritists. We ought not to be unduly titillated by the things that God has hidden from us. Paul indeed warns us to avoid those who have weird religious devotion to angels, who are puffed up with knowledge, dwelling on visions and failing to hold fast to Christ. That's in Colossians 2, 18 to 19. Our interest is not because of titillation. It is precisely for the opposite reason. We are interested in what happens in the heavenly court because we have seen that when we worship, we enter into that heavenly court and we have a role there. We are involved there. And so it is important for us to know the full biblical picture of what that involvement looks like. We obviously want to be doing that so that we may hold fast to Christ. So what does Christ tell us about our place in the heavenly court? Well, we only got the beginning of a picture last week, but we saw two important details. Firstly, in the Old Testament, human beings were occasionally included in the divine council. 
They were sometimes involved in the deliberations of that council, and they were sometimes commissioned to go out and to implement the solutions that the council decided on. Those human beings were called prophets. That is what made you a prophet, as we saw in Jeremiah, to, be, to become a true prophet. You had to be brought into God's council. We also saw this with Abraham and with how he debates with God about the fate of Sodom. He is brought into God's council, which is why Abraham is also a prophet. The second thing that we learned was when we turn to the New Testament, after looking at Abraham especially, we saw Jesus sends out disciples to test all the towns of Israel, just as Yahweh sent out angels to test Sodom. And we concluded last week by seeing that what Jesus was doing was essentially forming a divine council of his own here on earth, rather than in heaven, a council that was made up of the church. But that no doubt left you with many questions. Is the whole church part of the divine council today? Was that just Jesus' disciples back then? And if we are part of the divine council, what part exactly do we play? Because... Obviously, we can't speak to God directly and have him speak back as they do. So what is our role, given that the divine council is really about bringing earthly situations to God and judging them and then dealing with them? The divine council is about heavenly rulership of the earth. Well, hopefully, you have an instinct that actually... The church must have something to do with that, because isn't heavenly rulership of the earth what the gospel is all about? The gospel of the kingdom, the good news that Christ has been enthroned as king over every nation and people, surely would have some effect on the heavenly rulership of the earth and how that changes from the Old Testament to the new now that Jesus has been enthroned. So what I want to do today is basically do another lap around the Old Testament to get a clearer picture of this divine council's uh, involvement in earthly affairs. How did things work back then? And how does the death and resurrection of Jesus change that? Until now, we have looked at depictions of the divine council in Scripture which are essentially positive. The council is functioning pretty much as it should. It is ruling well. In 1 Kings 22, Ahab is enticed to remote Gilead to fall in battle through a fitting means, a lying spirit. In Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar has his kingdom taken from him by the decree of the watchers in order that everyone might know that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of men. These are fitting things. These are good judgments, good solutions to the problems that they are dealing with. But it is not always so. In fact, even elsewhere in Daniel, we get a hint about trouble in the heavenly realms. When an angel visits Daniel in chapter 10, he says, From the first day that thou didst set thy heart to understand and to humble thyself before thy God, thy words were heard, and I am come for thy word's sake. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. And then later in verse 20, he says, Now I will return 
to fight with the prince of Persia, and when I go forth, lo, the prince of Greece shall come. But I will tell thee that which is inscribed in the writing of truth, and there is none that holdeth with me against these, these princes, but Michael, your prince. Now, at first glance, you might think this sounds like the men in charge of Persia and Greece are opposing the messenger that is sent to Daniel. That's how we typically would read the phrase Prince of Persia and Prince of Greece. But that is obviously an absurd reading in this case. Are we supposed to think that the human ruler of Persia was able to stand against an angel and stop him from coming to Daniel for three weeks? And that he could only be beaten with the help of the archangel Michael who is the prince of Daniel's people, Israel, which means that he is almost certainly the angel of Yahweh himself. I mean, here's how Daniel himself describes his encounter with this angel. I lifted up mine eyes, and behold, a man clothed in linen, whose loins were girded with pure gold of Uphaz. His body also was like beryl, his face as the likeness of lightning, and his eyes as flaming torches, and his arms and his feet like unto burnished bronze, and the voice of his word like the voice of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men that were with me saw not the vision, but a great quaking fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and there remained no strength in me, for my splendor was turned in me into ruin, and I retained no strength. Yet heard I the voice of his words, and when I heard the voice of his words, then I was fallen into a death sleep on my face, with my face toward the ground. So Daniel sees the angel, his limbs turn to jelly, everyone around him flees in terror, even though they can't see anything, and then when the angel speaks, he falls on his face in a coma. Now does that sound like the kind of creature that a human being can stop? I mean, obviously not. Clearly then, the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece that we read about cannot be men in this passage. They must be angelic beings. They must be the same kind of being that visited Daniel. They are archangels, essentially. But these archangels, apparently, are working against the interests of Israel. They are fighting against a faithful angel sent from God in order to delay him, and they are fighting against the angel of Yahweh himself. So here we clearly have depicted angels as princes of nations. But how did angels come to be rulers over nations? Scripture actually does tell us. If you turn to Deuteronomy 32, in verses 8 to 9, it says, When the Most High appointed or apportioned the nations, when he separated the sons of man, or the sons of Adam, he set the boundaries of the peoples by the number of the sons of God. For Yahweh's portion is his people, Jacob his allotted inheritance. I'll read it again because this is a passage people are not generally familiar with. When the Most High apportioned the nations... When he separated the sons of man, he set the boundaries of the peoples by the number of the sons of God. For Yahweh's portion is his people, Jacob his allotted inheritance. Now, it will take us too far afield today to go deeply into this, but let me briefly explain what is happening here. This is a passage about inheritance. When the Most High apportioned the nations, this is a Hebrew term, apportioned, It refers to the parceling out of an inheritance. Most Bibles will actually add a couple of extra words to make this clearer. They'll say, apportion the inheritance of the nations, for instance. And at the end of the passage, we see that Jacob, that is Israel, is God's allotted inheritance. 
So there's a parallelism going on here where the ideas are being rhymed. Yahweh gave an inheritance to or of the nations, and there's a, a deliberate ambiguity here, I think. He apportioned those nations according to the number of the sons of God, but his portion is his people, and he took an inheritance for himself, which is Israel. It's difficult to describe this kind of parallelism using the spoken word. If I, well, I could use the whiteboard, but I won't use the whiteboard because it will interrupt the flow. But there is an ABBA rhyme scheme here. This is basically a chiasm. We've talked about chiasms in the Gospel of Mark, how you work in and you work out again. But what is happening here is that Yahweh is dividing mankind up into nations. He's parceling out land to the sons of man. And then he's parceling out the sons of man themselves to the sons of God. And when he does this, he also parcels out Israel to himself. Or more correctly, you might say he parcels out the land of Israel to Abraham, and he parcels out Abraham and his descendants to himself. Now, you've probably recognized that this must be talking about Babel. That's the only place where the nations are divided. And you remember last week how we noted the plural language in that passage. In Genesis 11, we read that Yahweh came down to see the city and the tower, which the sons of man built. And Yahweh said, behold, they are one people and they all have one language. And this is what they begin to do. And now nothing will be withheld from them, which they purpose to do. Come, let us go down and there confound their language that they may not understand each other's speech. One of the things that we noted last week was how wherever God goes, his counsel goes with him. They aren't explicitly mentioned most of the time. It's just assumed. So here, God goes down with his angels to investigate Babel. That is who he is talking to when he says, let us go down. Another thing that we noted last time was that the number of angels God took with him when he went down again later to investigate Sodom was significant. He took two which turned out to be important because during that event, he brought Abraham into his council as a third. Abraham became a third advisor, which is why he is called a friend of God. For instance, in Isaiah 41.8, Abraham's called the friend of God. A friend or uh, the friend of a ruler in the Old Testament was a close, trusted advisor. For instance, Hiram was a friend of David in 1 Kings 5.1. So during the events of Sodom, God took with him three close friends, the inner circle of his council. And then when Jesus established a new divine council here on earth, we saw that he also had three close friends, an inner circle of Peter and James and John. Now, how many angels does God take down to Sodom? Sorry, to Babel. Genesis 11 does not tell us, it doesn't actually mention the angels at all, But we can safely guess more than two or three in this case, because Deuteronomy tells us that the nations were apportioned according to the number of the sons of God. So however many nations there were, God probably took down that number of angels to Babel. And if you count the nations in Genesis 10 directly connected to the events of Babel, you'll find that there are 70. Now, do you remember how many disciples Jesus sent out to the towns of Israel? 70. He's signaling here very plainly that the church is at least a mirror image, if not a replacement for, the sons of God that were placed over the nations. That is what is happening at Babel. In Deuteronomy 32, 
Moses glosses the events of Babel. He describes or commentates them as a sort of disinheritance of the nations from God. God allots territories to the divided peoples in accordance with his allotment of the peoples themselves to the sons of God. The picture is the same as that of Luke 15:12, in which the prodigal son demands his inheritance early, saying in effect to his father, I wish you were dead, dad. Give me what you owe me. The parable of the prodigal son is actually set within a discourse on the kingdom. And I think it is certainly Jesus' commentary on Babel and on how the gospel is going to reverse it. Mankind should have inherited the whole world as a unified kingdom under God. That was what Adam was made to do, right? He was given dominion. The earth was Adam's inheritance. But you see the language of Deuteronomy. God apportions out the sons of Adam, the sons of man, because they insisted on another path, just like the prodigal son. They insisted on getting their inheritance early, before the kingdom was consummated. They were rebellious sons. So God divided the world among them and gave them what they wanted. They had disowned him, in effect, so he disowns them back, at least for a while. But it's not a complete disowning. He puts, them, he puts a separation between himself and them by putting them under masters or tutors. These elementary spirits, as Paul calls them in a couple of places in Galatians and Colossians. So he apportions Adam's kingdom to the archangels for them to kind of look after it. Look out for these rebellious sons of Adam. They're not going to get up to any good. You guys take charge of them. They don't want me. Make sure that everything goes according to plan. Rule in my stead. And so the archangels become their new gods. As with many things, this is a blessing and a curse. It would have been a lot more of a blessing if the archangels themselves had remained faithful to Yahweh. But at some point, we don't know when, they make the decision to ally themselves with Satan instead. We aren't really told much about this, and it doesn't really matter, but the implication is that just as the sons of God in Genesis 6 were corrupted by the allure of becoming one flesh with women who will marry them, so the sons of God in Genesis 11 are corrupted by the allure of becoming gods to men who will worship them. But we see that God does not disown all mankind. He keeps Israel as his portion, as his kingdom to rule over. Which is why, directly after Babel, we have, in Genesis 12, the calling of Abraham. God takes Israel as his own inheritance, even as he allots the nations to the heavenly host. And this is why there is such an emphasis in the law that is given to Israel about not going after the heavenly host. Think about Deuteronomy 4, 19 to 20. It says, Beware, lest thou lift up thine eyes unto heaven, and when thou seest the sun and the moon and the stars, even all the armies of heaven, thou be drawn away and prostrate to them and serve them, which Yahweh thy God hath allotted unto all the peoples under the whole heaven. But Yahweh took you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be unto him a people of inheritance, as at this day. Okay, so 
There were angels allotted to rule the nations who functioned as gods to those nations, which is why Psalm 82 says, I, I have said, gods, ye are, and sons of the most high, all of you. And clearly these gods were doing a bad job. They were showing partiality to the wicked. They were upholding injustice rather than justice. And we aren't told much about how this works, what the exact mechanism is, and how it connects to normal human rulership, because obviously most of this happens through normal human rulership. They are working behind the scenes, but it's not really important. The upshot is why we are told anything about it at all. It is the same reason that we are learning these things in a series about the church and worship. This psalm isn't included in the inspired psalm book or the songbook of Israel as an interesting anecdote it isn't like a record of the minutes of the divine council meeting that was leaked to stir up conspiracy theorists. The point is clear in the last verse. Rise up, O God, judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. The psalmist understood that the state under which he was living, this state where the angels ruled over the nations and they did a bad job, was not a state that would continue forever. Right after essentially disinheriting the nations, God promised Abraham that in him all those nations would be blessed. Asaph, who wrote Psalm 82, understood that this meant all the nations would be re-inherited by God through the seed of Abraham. He would reclaim every nation from the rulership of the corrupt gods. He would judge those gods for their rule, and he would make himself their king. So when did that happen? I mean, okay, you guys know when that happened, but let's put the pieces together. In Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar dreams of a great statue, which represents four kingdoms. The first kingdom is Babylon, the second is Media Persia, the third is Greece, and the fourth is Rome. And we can know this for certain, we can know the fourth is Rome for certain, because reading verses, uh, verse 44 of Daniel 2, we learn that in the days of the kings of this fourth kingdom, Quote, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed and the kingdom will not be left for another nation and it will bring an end to all these kingdoms, but it will stand forever, end quote. Now this describes the work of Jesus in history at the height of the Roman Empire. This is very clear in scripture because we are told more about this event in the beginning of Daniel 7. The same four kingdoms appear, or you might say more correctly, the powers behind them appear, this time represented as four beasts. And Daniel is considering the horns of the fourth beast, which are the kings that are um, part of this kingdom, when the scene changes to the heavenly court, to the divine council. And in Daniel chapter 7 and verses 9 to 14, we read, I beheld till thrones were placed, and one that was ancient of days did sit. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and the wheels thereof burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousands of thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. Then verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, there came with the clouds of heaven, one like unto a son of man. And he came even to the ancient of days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, 
and his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. You guys all know this passage, but I know you love it as well. Here we see the heavenly event which ushers in the kingdom that is promised in Daniel 2.44 during the time of the fourth kingdom. But there is one very other remarkable detail that comes shortly afterward, and this is of great importance because it connects to the church. As the angel with Daniel is explaining to him the meaning of the thing that he just saw, this vision, he tells him in verses 17 to 18, but the holy ones of the most high shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Now we have seen that holy ones is commonly a term used to describe the sons of God, especially when it is linked to terms like the most high. Here we have the holy ones or the most high inheriting the kingdom. But clearly these holy ones cannot be angels. The whole point here is that these holy ones are given a rulership or possession of a kingdom which they don't yet have. This rulership stands in contrast to the rulership or position of the nations which the sons of God, those holy ones, do currently have. What we see in Daniel 7 is in fact a changeover from the old dominion under the sons of God to a new dominion under the son of man. The rulership of the nations is stripped from the gods, taken over by the son of man, and subsumed into an eternal kingdom that will never end. Now, this leaves only one group that those holy ones could be. It is the divine council here on earth. It is God's human people. And this is why many translations like the ESV will render holy ones here as saints. That is literally what saint means. In the New Testament, any time you see the word saint, the Greek word behind it means holy one. It's one of the very annoying things about translations is that in the Old Testament, you see holy ones. In the New Testament, you see saints. Would that they chose one or the other. Because then you would see these connections much more clearly. So in Psalm 82, God stands in his congregation, his church in heaven, not his church down here on earth, among his holy ones, his angels, and he judges them for their terrible rulership. He promises that they will fall and he will inherit their nations. And then in the New Testament, God stands in his congregation, his church on earth, among his holy ones, his saints, and he gives them rulership. What does Jesus say to his disciples as he stands among them? He promises that they will make disciples of all the nations. Psalm 82 has been fulfilled in Christ and it is being fulfilled in Christ. And it was especially fulfilled in his resurrection and enthronement. I'm not going to run down the eschatological rabbit trail here. We all know that Matthew, Mark, and Luke say that the generation of Jesus' day would not pass away until the Son of Man came on the clouds of heaven to receive dominion. We know that Ephesians 1, 20-22 says that God has seated Jesus at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. We know that 1 Corinthians 15.27 and 1 Peter 3.22 identify this as a done deal. He is reigning. And we know that Stephen sees this in Acts 7 as he is being executed. He says, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. 
So Jesus is fulfilling Psalm 82 right now. He has been fulfilling it for 2,000 years. He will continue to fulfill it until he comes again, and he will complete its fulfillment on that day. God has already sentenced the corrupt gods, and he is now busy inheriting the nations which they ruled. And when that is done, he will execute the final judgment on them and all those who follow them in the lake of fire. They will, in, they will indeed die like men in the second death. Now, what I'd like to do now is take a bit of a diversion. We could go directly into what I had planned to talk about, which is worship as warfare, but it's Easter. So what I would like to do is turn to the glorious genius of how God took dominion out of the hands of these wicked sons of God and returned it to the hands of a human king through whom we share in the rulership of the heavenly places. It is appropriate on Easter that we take some time to glory in the cross of Christ, which is where the fulfillment of Psalm 82 began. Colossians 2.15 tells us that God disarmed the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, making a show of them openly and triumphing over them in the cross. This was a wisdom so deep, so tricky, so mysterious, that it was entirely hidden from these hidden heavenly rulers, and it was only suitable for the fullness of time, for when God's people were fully grown. As Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2, we speak wisdom, however, among them that are full grown, yet a wisdom not of this world, nor of the rulers of this world who are coming to naught, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, even the wisdom that hath been hidden, which God foreordained before the worlds unto our glory, which none of the rulers of this world hath known, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But why? What did the cross do? How did the cross disarm the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms? How is it that Jesus managed to trick them by being killed? Come, let us reason together. Why is it that mankind was divided and placed under other gods in the first place? It's not a trick question. It's because of sin. Man was made to image God, to represent him in the world, to, to extend his kingdom. That is what Adam was given, dominion, to exercise rule on God's behalf in the physical creation. But when Adam fell, we all fell in him. And since then, men by nature cannot represent God. In our natural state, we are enemies of God. We refuse to rule on his behalf. We will always choose for ourselves instead. We choose injustice over justice. We choose vice over virtue. We choose divisiveness over peace. Because, as we recently saw in our men's study going through Genesis 6, every thought and inclination of our hearts by nature is only and continually toward evil. That is, away from God. The heart is wicked and desperately sick. And we know that God did not give up on man despite this. He determined to restore the kingdom that he gave to Adam to make it his own kingdom again. But how was he to do this? The only way would be to find a loyal human being to rule as king on his behalf. He would need to find a new Adam, the Adam that Adam was meant to be, someone who would do nothing on his own authority, but only speak and do what the father gave him to do. 
in a manner pleasing to him, a true son. This is an emphasis in John's gospel. Now, since the human nature is corrupted and defiled in Adam, since it cannot submit to God's law, this meant that for God to find such a ruler would basically require him to become that ruler. So that's what the incarnation was all about. And that is why the rulers in the heavenly places were so eager to execute Jesus. They thought, here's this human ruler who's going to rule on behalf of God perfectly. He's going to take dominion back from us. What should we do about that? Hey, well, it worked for Adam. Let's kill him. By killing God's human king, his perfect human king, they thought that they could bring his plans of reclaiming and restoring the human kingdom to a swift end. But the thing is, they hadn't thought it through. Now, standing on the other side of the cross, this might seem obvious to us, but it was not obvious to them. Here is what they missed. The very means by which they hoped to end God's kingdom was the consequence of being excluded from it. Death is separation, right? It has been cut off from the love of God. This is why there are many places in the Old Testament, in fact, where it's not clear whether death or exile are the punishment for a crime, because it's like, covenantally speaking, what's the difference? The same is true for us. It would be better to be lawfully executed than to be lawfully excommunicated. To be executed is to be cut off from your body, but to be excommunicated is to be cut off from Christ's body, to be cut off from Christ himself. But that's for sinners. That's for regular humans. What about God? If God becomes a man, what does killing him do? How can God be excluded from his own kingdom? How can God be cut off from himself? God can never deserve death. And John 1.4 tells us that Jesus has life in himself. So when the one who is life takes death into himself, what happens? Well, Paul would say that death is swallowed up. The problem of our fallen natures, of our corruption being incompatible with the incorruptibility of God, our perishable flesh not mixing with the imperishable blessings of heaven, the problem of sin that led God to, inherit, uh, to disinherit the nations, that problem is dealt with ingeniously by God. As he becomes perishable, he is treated as corrupt. He suffers in himself the consequence of a fallen nature. He is made sin. So God extends himself into the human nature itself by taking on the form of a man in his son Jesus, and he then allows Jesus to suffer the penalty of sin, treating him as if he himself were morally defiled and cursed and cut off from God. But because Jesus is the one man who is not morally defiled, he is indeed infinitely more powerful than the power of sin infinitely more pure than the impure, this separation, this death, cannot hold him. It is as if he is wrapped up in death, and because he is a holy fire, death just burns up and turns to dust and falls off. And so Jesus is vindicated by the Spirit as not cursed. He is raised from the dead as proof that God will not permit him to be cut off, that he cannot be cut off. The resurrection is the Father through the Spirit testifying, as Pilate himself said, I can find no guilt in this man. Which means that there is now a perfect human ruler with a perfect claim to authority over Adam's kingdom. 
the delegated authority of the sons of God, is superseded by his because Adam has a prior claim. Man has a prior claim on this kingdom. It is man's kingdom. The only reason that man was removed from having the ultimate authority was because of sin, because of his failure. Now that there is a perfect man who has not failed, who will represent God, the sons of God have no more place in this hierarchy. But even worse, because that man is Yahweh himself, he has not only taken away their right to rule, but he has put them in subjection to a human being. Can you think of anything more humiliating for a being like the one that Daniel saw to be put in subjection to a nasty, dirty little human? And so Adam's kingdom is no longer under the authority of Satan and his angels. It is under the authority of God. Power has changed hands. The kingdom of Satan has become the kingdom of God, at least in terms of legal claim. But what about us? What about the church? God is not interested in taking back his kingdom from the gods if it contains only one man, even if that man is Jesus. Now, this is what the sons of God did not understand about death. If they hadn't killed Jesus, they would have lost their authority. But there would only have been one guy in the kingdom. Who cares? I mean, okay, it's God, but it's still only one man. If Jesus hadn't died, we would still be in our sins, right? But Jesus did die. They did that. That was their huge mistake. That is why they are so ashamed, why he has triumphed so completely over them. God is interested in establishing a kingdom of billions, a great multitude of worshippers that no one can number. We already have that piece in place. The church is Christ's body. A king stands in the place of his people before God. And he also stands in the place of God before his people. Works both ways. This is actually why in the ancient world, kings were almost always priests as well. In, In Egypt, one of Pharaoh's titles was high priest of every temple. Caesar was Pontifus Maximus, the supreme pontiff, supreme priest. And of course, in Genesis 14, we read Melchizedek, a king of Salem, brought bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. The priestly duties of kings was separated out under Moses because of sin. But Jesus is not a priest after the order of the Levites. He is a priest king after the order of Melchizedek. And because of his representation of his people, he stands in the place of any member of God's kingdom. And we are counted righteous in him. Because he has suffered the penalty of sin, the legal demand against anyone he represents is nullified. God looks to our representative to satisfy the demands of justice against us, and he has. But even that is only the beginning of the true genius of the gospel. The greatest, the deepest, the most mysterious and unexpected and surprising and incredible thing is how God brings us into his kingdom. It is by bringing his kingdom into us. When God dealt with the defilement of human nature on the cross, he did not make any particular sinner undefiled. He did not undo the curse universally. He did not make any or every human being immortal and sinless. 
Rather, he made the human, be- the human nature itself imperishable and redeemed the human dominion over the world in the man, Jesus, in one man, in Christ. It is the man, Jesus, who is raised imperishable. It is the man, Jesus, who had all things put in subjection to him. It is the man, Jesus, who became a life-giving spirit. Human nature is made sacred in Jesus. The mystery of the incarnation establishes a connection between the human nature and the divine nature. Jesus is the greater temple because God resides in a human body. That body is itself like sacred space, the physical location of the presence of God. But now, since all people share this human nature, all people may in principle share in God's nature also. Now, I don't mean that they become God in the way that Jesus became man, not at all. No, rather, Jesus extends his divine nature to us through his spirit. He puts his spirit in us. In the spirit, we are joined to him in such a deep and intimate and mysterious way that he becomes part of our being. We cannot be represented by him. We cannot become imperishable like him unless we partake of him. If we wish to have life in ourselves, we have to take life into ourselves. And the life is Jesus. And we'll represent this very shortly as we take the Lord's Supper. Now this is why Paul says that we have the mind of Christ in 1 Corinthians 2.16. It is the spirit of Christ which we have received. He is joined to us in some mysterious way when we are born again. And this is why Paul describes us also not just Jesus, but us as temples of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 6.19. The physical temple has passed away because the spiritual temple in Jesus has come. He is the substance which the temple symbolized. And because we are in him as he is in the Father, we become fractal temples ourselves. Living stones, as Peter tells us, building up the true temple. And indeed the true city of God, the new Jerusalem, which is the body of Christ. We're not merely made citizens of God's kingdom, in other words. We are made dwelling places of God himself, built together for a habitation of God in the spirit, as Ephesians 2.22 says. The point that I'm getting at comes back to kingdom and rulership. We are God's territory. By joining himself to us through the spirit of Christ, God makes our bodies his territory even as he changes our hearts to be loyal people and he dwells with us as our king, which means that we ourselves are God's kingdom. You see, a kingdom needs three things. It needs a king, and that's God dwelling in us. It needs a people, and that's obviously us too. And it needs a territory, which because God is dwelling in us, we are the territory, our bodies. And this is how the angel in Daniel 7 can interpret the son of man as the church. Did you notice this? He's explaining the vision of the Son of Man receiving dominion, and he explains it like this. But the holy ones of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. And again, in verse 27, he says, The kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the holy ones of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. 
Now, Jesus clearly interprets the Son of Man to refer to him. He says to the high priest, you shall see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. In Mark's gospel, the high priest tears his clothes, says, bless me, let's kill him. And yet this passage is also about us. Because we are in him, seated in the heavenly places with him, we also have received everything he has received. In particular, we have received the right to judge the nations. Now, I'm not going to get into what that means today and how it works. I will remind you of the very important doctrine of sphere sovereignty that we covered way back when we started looking at the church. But the point that I want you to take away today is not that we are world rulers. The point that I want you to take away today is that because Christ has replaced the gods of the nations, we have replaced the gods of the nations. Revelation 12, there was a war in heaven, Michael and his angels going forth to war with the dragon. And the dragon warred and his angels, and they prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast down, the old serpent, he that is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was cast down to the earth, and his angels were cast down with him. And I heard a great voice in heaven saying, Now is come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his anointed. For the accuser of our brothers is cast down, who accuseth them before our God day and night. And this is why Paul writes in Ephesians 6.12 that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the world rulers of this present darkness, the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Their authority may be gone, but their power is not, and they will fight to the end to maintain the grip that they had on the nations, to keep the kingdoms of the world that we have inherited. Their craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not their equal. But we're not on earth. We are seated in heaven. And that finally brings us to how worship is warfare, which we will look at next time.